0: All five of the big five publishing houses are based in New York City. The biggest literary agencies are based in New York City. New York City's local newspaper has the bestseller list that all of the publishers feature on their book covers. And even many of the top authors, like James Patterson, are New Yorkers. And New York City is one of the wealthiest cities in the world, and this gives the big five publishers a financial advantage. But this focus on just one city is also a weakness. Why? Because New York City is special, different, and weird. This isn't controversial. Ask any New Yorker and they'll tell you proudly that no other city is like New York City. New York is a world unto itself, and this can make it a little out of touch with the rest of the country. It's easy for New York City publishers, agents, editors, and journalists to be so focused on New York City readers that they overlook the rest of the country. And there are a lot of readers in the rest of the country. (laughs) And just because people in New York like you, it doesn't mean that your book is going to sell anywhere else. And just because New Yorkers hate you, it doesn't mean your book is doomed to failure. But I hear you saying, Thomas, since most of the gatekeepers and the publishers and agents live in New York, don't I need to comply with New York values in order to succeed? And the answer is no. No, you don't. You can even be traditionally published without complying with New York City culture. In fact, it's likely easier to make a living in this business thinking outside of the Big Apple because there's so many more readers outside of New York City. There are authors who sold millions of copies of novels that would cause the typical New York City agent to go seeking a safe space. And we're going to talk to one of those authors in this episode of Novel Marketing, the longest running book marketing podcast in the world. I'm Thomas Umstadt Jr., CEO of Author Media, and this is the show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books, and make a living writing books worth talking about. And our guest today is a New York Times bestselling author of over 25 novels, 50 short works, two collections, and he's co edited three published anthologies. And when he's not writing about rednecks with shotguns hunting vampires, he's talking about writing on his popular Writing Dojo podcast. Larry Correa, welcome to the Novel Marketing Podcast. Thanks for having me on, Thomas.
1: I, I've been looking forward to this.
0: So tell me your story. How did you get started writing?
1: I do not have like traditional writer background. I come from an agricultural background, a very rural western United States. Uh, I was born and raised in a very very poor part of California on a dairy farm in a Portuguese immigrant community. Uh, I'm Portuguese, that's a lot of fun. I have always been a voracious reader though. I Grew up reading tons of action, adventure stuff, fantasy. Later on in life, I was actually uh, in the uh, gun business. I was a, a machine gun dealer in the, in the state of Utah. And I was a firearms instructor, concealed weapons instructor, that kind of thing. I've always been kind of a gun nut. And I wrote a little book that was the answer to what would horror movies be like if they starred my kind of people. And uh, <laughs> That was called Monster Hunter International. So I was pre-ebook revolution. This is pre-Kindle, pre-Nook. We didn't have the whole uh, capability of doing easy ebook publication.
0: There was no book funnel back then.
1: (laughs) No, there wasn't. So back then, it was a much more different process. And really, you had a lot of the vanity publishing houses which were really your kind of only game unless you uh, were doing print runs entirely yourself. Because remember, this is pre-ebook, so we were doing basically $25 print-on-demand paperbacks. So for the indie guys out there right now working, it was a really different world. However, I understood the kind of product I had would not appeal to the typical New York agent. I went through that process. I tried the traditional publishing route where I submitted, let's say, 112 times. (laughs) (laughs) to agents and publishing houses. I got rejected literally everywhere. But what happened for me was I recognized the kind of product I had, and it appealed to an audience of people who loved horror movies and horror movie tropes and gun nuts. And at the time, I was a moderator on an Internet gun forum, back when Internet forums were the primary mode of communication on the Internet. This is pre-social media.
0: The good old days. I love the forums. That's why we created AuthorMedia.Social, because I wanted to bring that back. (laughs)
1: Honestly, I missed it. I I thought it was a lot funner, and you really got to know people. I was well-known in that world, and so I originally started putting my short fiction up uh, for these other gun nuts to see and enjoy, and they liked it. I started doing an online fiction serial with another author named Mike Coopery, where we went back and forth for a summer, a thousand words a day. Basically, he'd write a scene, then I'd write a scene, then he'd write a scene, back and forth. Then when it came time to self-publish this book, I did a print run and sold, I believe, about 6,000 copies, which at the time, you got to understand, was pretty astronomical.
0: And not surprising because you're doing the most important thing right. So what most indie authors do is they write a book, and then they try to find an audience for their book. But what you were doing is you had an audience, and you wrote a book for that audience. So in your books, you'll have a whole page talking about exactly what guns they're about to go take to go hunt the vampires and what attachments and what caliber. And I can imagine the typical editor was like, nobody wants to read a whole page about what gauge the shotgun is. And you're like, my readers do. (laughs) They care very much. Yeah, that was
1: exactly right. Well, because what it was, was I was coming from an audience that was deeply unsatisfied and lacking in product. And so I would often hear other people who were the same demographic as me complaining about the state of the market. Not that I really understood all this stuff at the time, but it was just, I would hear other people who were like me complaining about the state of fiction and how the vast majority of fiction just didn't scratch that itch for them. So what a lot of people don't realize is I actually made my first Monster Hunter novel gun-nuttier. I gun-nutted it up. So once I failed to get an agent, I accentuated those parts in a final edit before I self-published it and advertised it primarily on these internet gun forums.
0: It's the kind of book you could sell at a gun show to the kind of people shopping at gun shows. And it's like, who is writing a novel for those people? At that time, only you. (laughs) So you had the whole market to yourself, effectively.
1: It was really interesting because what happened is for years and years and years, my people would complain about how they're dissatisfied with the state of what was available. And there was a handful of authors who scratched that. It's, you know, Stephen Hunter, but he was writing thrillers. Tom Clancy and the techno-thriller genre. But there was absolutely nothing on the fantastic side of things to scratch this itch. At the time when I was writing this, I thought it was writing action-adventure-slash-horror, because I was using horror tropes. Knowing what I know now, I am definitely would be categorized in urban fantasy. But at the time, that wasn't even really a thing. So what I did is I took all those things that we loved from the Stephen Hunter novels and the, the Vince Flynn, Brad Thor kind of world... And I put it into the fantastical, I threw in werewolves and vampires, and I went whole hog because I grew up on Tolkien and uh, Terry Brooks. I went in with elves, trolls and gnomes and orcs, and I just had fun with it. And the whole premise was it was just my kind of people, basically mercenaries, military contractors, guys like that, in a world where monsters are real, getting paid to handle monster problems. And I made it fun. And it was exactly what that particular audience had been looking for for a long time. So it blew up huge.
0: That's right. Because when we talk about fantasy, it's easy to think of fantasy as elves and orcs. But at the core, it's the longing of the fantasy of like, I am a, a warrior. Or I am a powerful elf. And your books are fantasy in the sense that men, when they buy their first shotgun, something deep inside of them wishes that vampires were real. <laughs> right. Like, the, the fantasy of using that gun to defend your family. You see it in the movie. Christmas story, right? Where he gets his Red Rider BB gun and he's shooting the bad guys who are trying to invade his house, right? This is a, a core male fantasy of I'm the one who's powerful and I'm powerful enough to protect my family. And your books satisfy that fantasy because that's what your characters are doing, right? They're, they're family people. This is a, another interesting thing. A lot of your characters are married there. They have children and they, they value family and protecting family is, is a high value. And so for, for that kind of reader, this book really scratched that itch that they had in some of the, the same way that Tom Clancy did. I remember a friend of mine, he's like, oh, I just read The Sum of All Fears. And what did he summarize? He told me all about the 30 pages about how a nuclear bomb works. <laughs> he didn't <laughs> care about all the action about is the bomb going to go off and can they intercept it in time. He was like, no, it's like now I know how a nuclear bomb works. And that was what he was nerdy about and what he wanted to know. And knowing what you can be nerdy about and what your audience wants you to be nerdy about really can unlock marketing potential because now they have something to talk about. It's like, hey, this is the same shotgun that Pet used in the book, blah, blah, blah. And now they're talking about your book.
1: Absolutely. It was kind of fun because I'm one of the only authors I know who does uh, book signings at SHOT Show, which is the big industry <laughs> trade show for the gun business. And so I kind of became like the token writer of of that whole culture. And the thing is, it's a really big culture. I'm not alone anymore because after I did this, a lot of other people recognized that there was a market there and they started catering to it too, which was awesome. And even though I was originally set out writing for a very specific niche, it was when I got my first review that started out something with the effect of, I'm a 65 year old grandma. I don't like guns. (laughs) I don't like violence. I don't like monsters. I love this book. And at that point I was like, oh, wow. I might actually have a mainstream career beyond just catering to my people. So as Uncle Hugo's bookstore, independent bookstore, one of the employees there read my online fiction serial and he contacted me and he said, hey, I work at a big bookstore. Would you send me an early copy of Monster Hunter International because I loved your online stuff. And if I like it, I'll show my boss and he might buy some copies. And so I did and he loved it. He showed it to his boss, Don Bliley, who's kind of a legendary bookseller. Don loved it, wound up printing the whole thing off on a dot matrix printer and read it at home. I'm dating myself here. (laughs) And he absolutely loved it. And I sold Don a whole bunch of cases of books and he hand sold them to his customers. And Don's bookstore was one of the bookstores that was sampled for the Entertainment Weekly bestseller list back in those days. So my original self-published book wound up like number three. On the Entertainment Weekly bestseller list, just because of how many copies Uncle Hugo's had sold. So all of a sudden, now I had an independent published book as a $25 print-on-demand paperback that I was selling on Internet gun forums had become a national bestseller. Back in the day when there weren't as many bestseller lists to choose from. Once again, this was pre-Amazon. So at that point, everything just went nuts. And Ban Books approached me. They loved the book. They made me an offer. And this is actually one of the things that worked out really well for me. Is they said we would like to take this book and publish it, but the way traditional publishing works, there is a delay there. It's going to be about a year once we get that on the calendar and printed up and distributed and so forth. So you're going to have to discontinue the self-published version. Okay, fine. So I took that advance and I discontinued the self-published version. Well, what happened is for a year, all these people who had read the original Monster Hunter, the self-published version, told all their friends. But then it was like, well, you can't get one because it's (laughs) unavailable. Nothing makes an American want something more than being told they're not allowed to have it. So one year later, when the small print run came out for my first Bayon novel, Monster Hunter International Bayon version in 2009, it exploded. Like we sold the entire print run in like three days nationwide.
0: We have a podcast episode about this phenomenon, about scarcity and psychologically why it's such a powerful motivator and how to use scarcity. And I will say this is a scarcity tactic I haven't heard of before, (laughs) basically saying you can't get this book.
1: Well, the funny thing was, is the publisher at Bay and Tony Weisskopf, a very smart woman, very, very intelligent, been around a long time, knows the publishing industry like the back of her hands. She thought to herself, okay, this book was independently published. He's already sold a lot of copies, so he's probably already hit most of the market that he's going to be able to hit. So my print run is going to be small. I'm going to assume he's already hit most of the people that are going to buy it. On the contrary, she didn't realize the power of the word of mouth on this particular product amongst the community that I was catering to. So when it did come out, oh my gosh, they went absolutely bonkers. And then it was out again, and we had to get hurry up and get a second print run. <laughs> Which we blasted through, and so on and so forth. And that was 15 years ago now. And Monster Hunter International, that original book, launched my career. Uh, there's been millions of copies sold worldwide. It's wound up turning into an eight book series with four spinoffs now, and an anthology of short stories, and another one coming out, and co authored novels, and other authors writing in it in a shared universe. And I owe it all to just being a little independent guy who wanted to write fun horror novel stories for gun nuts.
0: Your most recent book I just checked is number one in urban fantasy on Audible, which is the one list that I care about as an audiobook uh, listener. And the, the principle here that I want you to hear is not, oh, I need to write for gun nuts like Larry did. You can if you want to, but the real principle is, he found an audience of people who are not well-served. And this is actually most Americans. The reason why more people don't read is because there's no books written for that kind of person. If you're a New York City coffee shop attendee, there is a world of books for you, right? But if there's thousands of different communities who are wanting different things, and only hundreds of those communities are well-served with books. And so if you can identify community and give them what they want. Write something that scratches their itch. So it helps if you're a member of the community, and it also helps if that community gathers together. So, Larry, if if those gun nuts didn't have that online forum, if they didn't gather in real life, it would have been a lot harder with your same book because the work to create the community had already been done. Now, some authors, they build the community from scratch, and there's some real value there. But, man, that is a slow start (laughs) because you're – growing that community one person at a time.
1: It is. It's such a weird process. It is very hit or miss too, because I've seen a lot of people try to attempt this for other groups. And I think the key is it has to be organic. It has to be something where you see the opportunity and you recognize the opportunity. You say, okay, here is a gap in the market that is not being fulfilled. Now, my career has grown beyond that initial small group of people. But I think the key to being an author is you've got to get enough stuff out there that people can see your quality and recognize it. And like now I write in five different genres, and I've got a bunch of different series, and I do well in all of those. But it's built upon the foundation of having that core group of a few thousand hardcore evangelical – and when I say evangelical, I don't mean specifically religious. I mean they're willing to tell their friends about your stuff. And what that enabled me to do is, over time, I was able to expand. So after I'd written a couple Monster Hunter novels, I went to Tony Weisskopf and I said, hey, I don't want to just be the monster guy for the rest of my life. I want to try some other things. I So I pitched some other books to her. I uh, have since wrote thrillers. I've written uh, alternate history. I've written epic fantasy. My epic fantasy is doing really, really well. I've even done some sci-fi. And I've done some nonfiction since. But the key is there is all about that original foundation And so I think from a marketing perspective is what can you as the author do to see what's out there? And that whole thing about Manhattan publishing, that's really accurate. I don't think people realize just how insular it used to be. The independent book revolution changed publishing so dramatically. It's so incredible. The tools available for indie authors now, marketing and production, are just phenomenal. And honestly, 20 years ago, it wasn't like this at all. It was very much... You fit into that Manhattan culture, and you were accepted by it, or you kept your head down and your mouth shut. So you were either completely apolitical, or you were maybe one or two token people that they were okay being different and got a pass for whatever reason. You know, you're Tom Clancy. Or you went along with the herd, and that was what was expected. And anybody who didn't was a proverbial nail that stuck up that got hammered down. 16 years ago getting into this, it was awful lonely out there. Now I love it It, because it's enabled people from all walks of life and all parts of the country and the world to freely express themselves without having to have to sneak past the gatekeepers to do so. I love it. I think it's,
0: I think it's been awesome. Yeah. And you've provided a model because to do what you did, it's easier, right? The, The hassle of going with a vanity printer and having to pay $25 for a paperback and, In the typesetting, you probably had to do that in InDesign or pay somebody to do it. All of those things are easier now. And yet the core marketing thing of writing for a specific audience is just as effective as it was back then. And so there's a real opportunity. And the other advantage of writing for a specific audience rather than writing a specific genre is that it gives you flexibility in genre. Because, yes, you've written in these different genres, right? You've got an epic fantasy and you've got a nonfiction. But those core few thousand evangelical fans you're writing books that appeal to the same group of people right you didn't go out and write a here's why we need to gun control book right <laughs> then, then your your core
1: audience would have been I actually wrote the opposite of that <laughs> exactly <laughs> that one got to number i want to say number 17 on all of amazon number one in nonfiction, so that was pretty cool uh, but you got to be true to yourself you got to be true to your core convictions and i think a lot of writers they try to disguise who they are because they want to like try to cater to one particular group. And uh, I think that can work if you're wired that way psychologically. However, most of us creative writer types aren't. A lot of the power from what we write comes the fact that we are telling stories that we ourselves believe in or we ourselves want to hear. And I'm not Mr. Message Fiction, but we all, we all have themes in our work. And I think if you're trying to write something that you're not true to because you're trying to cater to something, I think it's going to stifle your creativity. It's going to make you less productive. And most importantly, you're not going to have as much fun. And if you're not having fun, then that's obvious to the reader. Contagious enthusiasm is the single most powerful weapon we've got.
0: And word of mouth is still the number one marketing tool. It's the number one way people find out about books and having... A consistent brand. Because when you're saying be true to yourself, right? The marketing language of that is like, hey, I have a consistent brand. I know who I am, right? That's the first step of creating a brand is knowing who you are, what makes you weird, and leaning in on those that weirdness, right? You don't see your weirdness as a liability. Cause it's really easy to be like, Oh, you know, I'm conservative. I live in the country, I work with people who buy guns, these are all liabilities. And they're like, Yeah, if you're trying to be a New York author, they're liabilities. But if you let them be strengths, they can be strengths. And so you you know who you are, and then the second step in the novel marketing branding process is know who you're writing to, right? So it's like, hey, these are the people I'm trying to thrill and being a member of that community is really valuable. I don't think it's required, but I do think you need to be transparent that you're from the outside writing for them and not try to be like, hello, fellow kids. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
1: you think about it, it comes down to a question of authenticity and passion. Like Michael Connelly writes Bosch. Michael Connelly was never a cop, but Michael Connelly was a crime beat reporter. And he was stationed in Los Angeles. And so he knew the crime of the city of L.A. better than just about anybody who was not a cop. And plus he worked with thousands of cops. So when he writes Bosch, you can feel that passion and authenticity. Now, when I say authentic, I got a lot of friends that are cops. It's not 100% accurate. That's not what I'm getting at here. I mean, there's obviously things that you're going to check reality at the door to tell a better story. That said, though, he got it. He got the community for the most part, and he could tell those kinds of stories in a way that to the reader, they feel like they're there. Earlier on, you mentioned Tom Clancy with the nuclear bomb. It's one of the things I like to refer to as the Michael Crichton effect. When you read a Michael Crichton novel, you would read like Jurassic Park and you get done and you'd feel smart because like, oh, wow, I know about DNA now. You know what I mean?
0: 14-year-old me was very excited to explain chaos theory to all of my 14-year-old friends after I read Jurassic Park. Exactly. It did not help me win friends and influence people.
1: <laughs> no, but it's a powerful thing. Is When people read an author's work who is authentically enthusiastic about that thing, they integrate that and then they take it with them and they tell their friends. Once you can get a community of fans going, your career as a writer is golden because it's as long as you're making those people happy and you're entertaining them and you're giving them what they want, then you've got so much freedom to experiment with other stuff and try to grow as an artist and put more stuff out there. But honestly, it's really hard to grow and experiment if you don't have that core cadre of people who are invested in your success. And so I love my fans. I mean, I think they're the greatest people in the world and honestly, I owe all my success to the fact that they're just cool. Yeah.
0: You know, going back to that Seth Godin quote, I I quote over and over again, it's about writing books for your readers rather than trying to find readers for your book. So often people come to me with completed book and they're like, Thomas, I want you to help me market this book. And it's so obvious that they haven't thought about who the book is for. They think that I have some magical marketing button that I can just push it and readers will suddenly become the kind of people who want to read their book. And that's not our job as marketers. We're not here to change people into the kind of people who like our book. Because we can't change somebody. It's very hard. Like maybe if you're married to somebody for 30 years, you can change one person. But you know what you can change? You can change your book. <laughs> you can change it into the kind of book that they want to read. And I love that you did an edit to ramp up the gunnet nature of the book after <laughs> you know, New York said no. Because it was brilliant, right? Because you're like, okay, well, if, I'm, if this is just going to be for the gunnets, then I'm going to make the kind of book that they love. Not the kind of book that they like, but the kind of book that they love.
1: Well, give me an example. So when I was really shopping around to different agents and that kind of thing, I had one agent who was really interested in it and came back and said, okay, if you make the following changes, then I would be interested in representing this book. And she gave me her changes, but the thing was, these changes were not good. And I was just a newbie. I was just some little indie newbie guy paying for this all out of my pocket based upon my gun store wages. (laughs) (laughs) And there was no way, though. I started looking at what she wanted me to do, and if I had made those changes, it would have destroyed the work. It still would have been a book, but it wouldn't have been what I wanted it to be. And so at that point, I asked myself, do I want to go down this path of satisfying New York City, a place that's entirely paved and has no shooting ranges? I, I came to the conclusion, was like, I can't write to satisfy these people and still make the people that I'm actually writing for happy. And most importantly of all, I can't make myself happy. I can't conform to that. And so I didn't, I passed on that. You got to be true to yourself and you got to be true to your audience.
0: And I think the moral of the story here is that it's okay to be different, right? There's a push amongst gatekeepers towards homogeneity and making everyone the same. And they really like Uniformity and a little bit of diversity, especially diversity in thought becomes an asset for marketing. And it's okay to write a book that some people don't like. In fact, I would say it's required. The most popular books have the most voracious haters, right? If you were, what are the best selling books? It's the Bible, it's the Quran, right? Books that people really like, but also books that people really don't like, right? Like, yeah, like and I'm not saying you have to write a religious book and to be polarizing, but the core thing is that we often see that weirdness that we have, that difference, that, that thing about our brand that sticks out, and we see it as a liability. And if you're willing to see it as an asset, you can build your whole brand around it. And the metaphor that I often use in branding is if all you have to battle giants is a sling and a few stones, that's all you need. And trying to put on Saul's armor is actually the wrong approach if that's not what you're used to. If it doesn't fit, it doesn't fit. And so don't try to make something fit that doesn't fit. Instead... Look for the community that you fit in, that you can thrill, and then thrill them. And if you do that, they'll follow you through different genres. (laughs) You can write urban fantasy and epic fantasy and nonfiction, and those same readers will follow you from book to book.
1: I I see a mistake made by writers all the time, and it really makes me sad. This is one thing I've tried to coach writers away from, is they will try to placate people who aren't really even their target audience. Oftentimes you'll see this on social media, that kind of thing, where you'll have some hashtag writing community or whatever, and it's writing advice says, don't ever do this, or you have to do this, or always do this, or this kind of person's not allowed to tell this kind of story. You know what? Guys, if you try to make your art fit the demands of those people, you're going to turn in inferior art. Just don't negotiate with terrorists. Make your own art. Don't let other people dictate to you what you can and cannot say, especially if you're independent. You have no gatekeeper, no publisher, no agent who is stopping you from telling the kind of story that you want to tell.
0: Who you get feedback from is so critical. Absolutely. And once you know who your community is that you're writing to, it helps you judge that feedback. Because if you don't know what community you're writing to, everyone's feedback is the same. And then it's all conflicting and you're overwhelmed, the more feedback you get, the more lost you get, the more edits you get on the manuscript, the more bland it becomes, because it keeps getting changed without getting improved. You know, there's this old saying, don't spend money you don't have to buy things you don't need to impress people you don't like. And the same is true with your brand, right? Don't make brand changes that you don't need to impress people that don't like you. (laughs) Because you can't turn a hater into a lover again marketing is not changing people and we can't change someone into loving us we want to right we want the whole world to love us but that's not how the world works and you can't go and turn people from hating you into loving you but you can cause people who like you to like you even more because you've served them really well
1: yeah i hesitate to even call it criticism because a lot of times people aren't giving you constructive criticism they actually they want you to fail And so they're going to just attack you. They're going to find something to attack in your work. They're going to pick out some quibble and they're going to just throw it at you to make you feel bad and to see if they can't bend you to their will and shame you into compliance. There's actually a giant contingent of our society who they enjoy forcing creatives to get in line. That's really what it comes down to. They're not in it for the stories. They're not in it for the books or the comics or the video games or the movies or whatever it is. They're in it to be bullies. It's just an opportunity for them to push you around. And so when authors out to these people and bow down and say, okay, I'm going to do what you say because I don't want you to be mad at me. Maybe if I comply, you'll be nice to me. No, guys, they're never going to be nice to you. And in fact, once you give in to them, you've just empowered them and they're just going to do it to you more and they're going to do it to other authors. So just... Do what you want, guys. Honestly, it comes down to as long as you're having fun and your readers are having fun. That's what matters. Don't worry about the haters.
0: And it helps build those fanatical fans. Because oh, yeah. when the people who are bullying your fans bully you and you stand up to them, suddenly your fans feel like you're standing up for them as well. Right? I think one of the best things to happen to Brandon Sanderson was that hit piece. <laughs> I think oh, it was yeah. Wired... Magazine did this hit piece and totally trashing him. And suddenly people who were on the edge about Brandon, they're like, yeah, I kind of like him. Now they're like, how dare you? You're attacking nerds. <laughs> and all the nerds are who had been bullied for decades, right? And so when we see one of our own getting bullied and he stood up and he was very gracious, a, a lot more gracious, I think, than you would have been in that situation. Oh, man, I would have <laughs> let him on fire. I remember when that happened because I know Brandon in real life. I, I, Brandon
1: was the first author to take the time when I was a newbie to give me career advice. He had just written Mistborn. He had just gotten picked to finish off Robert Jordan's work. And he took the time to help me out as a complete newbie and give me business advice, stuff that he wished he'd known. So he's genuinely one of the nicest guys in publishing. So when they started doing a hit piece on him, because he's a family man and he loves his wife and (laughs) he's religious, and they're just dogpiling him. It was so asinine. And Brandon is a gracious guy. Plus, he just had a $47 million Kickstarter. He's doing just fine, right? (laughs) He's orders of magnitude more successful than the rest of us. But he responded graciously. Where if there's been me, I would have responded with, like, nuclear fire, you know? (laughs) But what you say there is true. It's interesting. One of the things I enjoy, and I've done this a lot in my career, is if you have a core group of fans that you can be honest with and be yourself with and just be frank and blunt, when you get attacked... You can actually monetize the hatred of your enemies to help your sales. <laughs> now, this doesn't work if you're disingenuous. I've seen writers out there who see me and they see my success and they try to emulate it. by, I'm going to go pick fights with people and I'm going to be like Larry Korea. I'm going to be a lightning rod of controversy and I'll sell more books, but then they don't. Because the first step is you got to have the craft down. you got to have the books be good enough that it matters. That's when people check out your stuff, they stick around. And second, the controversies have to be organic and they have to be truthful. If you go out of your way just to be an antagonistic jerk, people see through that. So don't just fabricate pointless fake drama. If you're going to make a stand on something, make sure it's something you actually believe in. Then when people come and they attack you, your readers take that personal because now it's not just an attack on you. It's an attack on your readers and your readers will rally around that and be like, let's go tell all our friends to buy this book. And it's awesome. But I guess I got to say, guys, the key is you got to be honest. If you do this disingenuously, you're just a grifter and readers can tell you got to be a storyteller and a creator and an artist. First and foremost, take a stand have a backbone, believe
0: what you believe, and stand by your convictions. That's the key. And this is classic old advice. If you go back to Hamlet, Polonius gives advice to Laertes. I looked this up. He said, beware of entrance to a quarrel, but being in, be it that the opposed, beware of thee. Right? Don't go around looking for a quarrel. But once you're in one, be in it to win it, right? If you're going to take a stand, if you're going to pick a hill, pick a hill you're willing to die on and stand there because that courage in the face of adversity is inspiring. It inspires your readers, and that inspiration is really valid, but none of it matters if you, the book isn't good. <laughs> so Larry went through, went past that really fast. He said the craft, but it's so critical. You've got to write the book that scratches the itch that your readers already have. But if you do that, all of these other things can help you sell more copies.
1: Well, we've all seen people who become an overnight sensation bestseller for one book because they wound up in the news for some reason. They have their one book, but it's not good, and then they never have another one. Because it doesn't matter how famous you are or how controversial you are if the books aren't good. One of my favorite quotes on this topic comes from Jim Butcher, and it's, Never preach harder than you can entertain. And so above all, first and foremost, you're still a writer. You're an entertainer first. And a lot of people get this in their head that I'm anti-message fiction. I'm really not. I'm against message fiction that beats you over the head. I'm against message fiction where it's message first, story second. I think the key is you got to tell a good story. And if you want to get a theme in there, you want to get a message in there, you want to get a story in there, bigger than their story, you want to hit on whatever the points are, do it. That's awesome. But... Story first.
0: Clemvani de Profundis, which is a music band that I absolutely adore. They do these fantasy ballads, and they have one called The Dragon Shore, which is the story of the dragons attacking Hammerdeep where the dwarves are, and the dwarves go on this mission of revenge to clear the dragon shore of its dragons. Man, I love that song. The song is fantastic. I've listened to it over and over again. My kids love it, and they run around the house, and they get all excited and last night, I was looking at the lyrics of it, and the seven dragons that they battle actually line up with the seven deadly sins. And there's this whole additional layer of this song of that's like the spiritual message that completely went over my head my first 50 times listening to this song. And it didn't hang on that, right? It was still an amazing song of dwarves battling dragons and going across the sea. And they hate the sea, but they hate the dragons more. Like It's a great song. <laughs> I'll probably link to it in the show notes. But now that I realize it has that deeper message, it doesn't cause me to like the song less. It causes me to like the song more. And that's what good craft is, is that if the story is good, you can earn the right to put some messages in it. But you have to, like you said, like what Butcher said, you've got to get the craft done first. Absolutely. And if you're looking for craft help, I'd recommend the Writing Dojo podcast, (laughs) which is if you want more of Larry talking about writing, it's a weekly show where they go deep and they talk with a lot of authors who I would say leans fantasy sci-fi, but you talk with authors who write in other genres as well. And it's a really excellent podcast that gets into the nitty gritty of specific craft topics. And we'll have a link to that podcast in the show notes.
1: Guys, get out there and write and have a good time. I mean, honestly, if you're having fun, the reader will sense the fact you're having fun because that will come through the page and they will have fun too. And so be happy, tell stories, work hard. Button seat, hands-on keyboard. (laughs) That's my advice, guys. Get it out there.
0: And we'll have a link to Larry Korea's website. I don't recommend his most recent Monster Hunter book. You can read it if you want, but I recommend you go back to the first one because they build on each other and they'll make more sense if you read Monster Hunter International. I will say, as a Texan, I very much enjoyed Rednecks (laughs) versus Zombies. It was where the monsters are getting hunted by the gun toting. I got some cool
1: Texans in this series.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'm all for that. So, Larry Correa, thank you so much for joining us today on the Novel Marketing Podcast. Thanks, Thomas. Our featured patron today is C.L.R. Peterson, author of Lucia's Renaissance. Only a suicidal zealot would even whisper the name Martin Luther because heresy is fatal in Renaissance Italy. But Luther's ideas ignite Lucia's faith, so she must choose, abandon her beliefs, or risk her life. Journey with Lucia as she navigates the dangerous world of 16th century Italy. C.L.R. Peterson, thank you so much for being a patron of this podcast. Thank you for supporting the show. We could not do this without you. And if you would like to support the Novel Marketing Podcast and get the bonus episodes, the exclusive discounts, and so much more, go to novelmarketing.com slash patron. That's novelmarketing.com slash patron to become a patron today. The Novel Marketing Podcast is a production of authormedia.com. Our guest today is Larry Korea. Our producer is Laurie Christine. Audio engineering by William Umstath. Blog post version is crafted by Shauna Lettler, and you can find that blog post version at authormedia.com slash 391. I'm Thomas Umstat Jr. saying thank you for listening and live long and prosper.